morning again. In this uh, increasingly post-Christian world, as we call it now, um, I kind of love the challenge, especially up in New England, of trying to think out of the box in some basic questions. And I think two of the, two of the biggest questions that I'm often thinking about and, and, and receiving are, is Christianity even relevant anymore, especially worship? Something as ancient sounding as worship. And isn't it just really offensive? And thinking about those two, I think when it comes to relevance, I think it's actually a pretty easy question. It is incredibly relevant because every culture in the history of the world has and will continue to worship. Worship is not a unique thing to Christianity. There is not a culture that we have ever discovered or heard of that doesn't worship, that doesn't praise some type of deity or God or thing or person. That's not unique. It's at very often the center of their identity, the center of their political identity, family identity, civic identity, if you will. And so how incredibly naive is it to think that we can be a culture that doesn't worship? No. Everybody worships. Every person you've ever met worships someone or something. And it's because we were made to do that. We are creatures who become what we worship. That's how God made us. We reflect, we imitate, we uh, want to be like, want to even be as united as possible to the thing or person we are worshiping. It's not surprising that a lot of ancient cults even involved prostitutes in their worship. How much more uniting are you going to get in the, in the worship service? But the reason it is so relevant also, I think, speaks to why it is so offensive. One vivid uh, picture in, in the Old Testament is the story of the golden calf, one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. Right after the, uh, the history that will define the people of Israel for thousands of years, right after they cross the Red Sea, are escaped, brought, as our passage even says, by the hand, out of Egypt, uh, this amazing redemption. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the law, one of which is to not worship anyone else or anything else but the Lord your God. And what are the Israelites doing in that moment but convincing their leader, the priest Aaron, to worship a golden calf? They bring their jewelry and their gold to make this calf, and they bow down and say, praise you for saving us out of Egypt, you golden calf. And Moses, when he comes down, drops the, the stones, the tablets of stone that had the law written on it. There's outrage and anger and punishment. But did you ever know that part of the punishment is this verse? He took the calf, this is Moses, after this happened. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, and ground it to powder, 
and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Why would he do that? He made them drink it. That is just an amazing picture, I think, of really a universal truth of all humanity. You become what you worship. You ingest it. You drink it even. Whatever it is you worship, you will be like. And so, this passage has a lot to say to us about worship. Is there something unique about Christian worship? What does it have to do with Jesus, and what does God want to do with us through it? We have that promise that's throughout, excuse me, the entire Bible. I will be your God, and you will be my people But let's see what that's going to mean through worship. Let's pray. God, you are good and holy. We have just sung that you are the ancient of days, that you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. And you have even faced our sin, even while we were enemies. And because you are a God of mercy and grace, you sent Christ to die for us. We ask that you would speak to us by your word. Comfort, Lord the downtrodden and the brokenhearted, and challenge those who are stubborn and hard-hearted. By your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. So we're in this book of Hebrews in chapter 8. We're in this heart that he's talking about the priesthood of Christ, the worship of Christ. And I really want to look at the priest of worship, the possibility of worship, and then the power of of worship, and he spends more time than anywhere else in the New Testament talking about Christ as our priest. So let's see what he talks about here. He starts off, it's always helpful, right, when the Bible says, the main point of what I'm saying is this. That's what he does here. So that's helpful. The first two verses. Now the point, or the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So what's going on just right there? The high priest, he just spent a whole chapter beforehand talking about the priesthood of Christ, comparing it to the priests of the old tabernacle and temple that was presumably still going on. Some people think this letter was written before it was destroyed in 70 AD. So he's comparing these Levite priests that are actually still doing the temple worship in Jerusalem to our high priest. And what's the difference? What's better, as he talks about later, this better covenant, the better promises? Well, one, he is seated. Seated at the right hand. This is a big theme throughout Hebrews and really throughout the New Testament. It's even in the Apostles' Creed, so you know when it's in something like that, we want to pay attention to it. And he's seated not because he's tired. Just like God, after creating back in Genesis, he doesn't take a Sabbath because he's tired. He sits down and takes a rest because he's now reigning as king. He has completed his work. Our high priest is not like the priests that are still active, still bringing lambs and other animals to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. Our priest is done with that work. He's seated. 
He's at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so our access, if you will, is guaranteed. It's a sure thing. The chapter right before this, he says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because once for all, he offered up himself. That's crazy. That he's done. He's done with his work. And yet he's also called a minister. This is another unique thing about the book of Hebrews. In verse 2, he's called a minister. And that's not the normal word in the New Testament for minister, which is often like servant. It's not the word that's used here. It's more like liturgical leader. He is called our worship leader in the holy places in heaven. So he is one who has done his work as priest as far as what he is to sacrifice. He sacrificed himself once for all. But he is now our worship leader. How are we to understand that? Well, one, I think it is important, like even, even the, the folks we have singing, we don't call them worship leaders. They're not our worship leaders. I'm not our worship leader. Jesus is our worship leader. What does that mean? Well, to think about worship in a Christian sense has to do with Jesus being the real agent in worship. Worship is not something that we got together 2,000 years ago after Jesus ascended and said, hey, we got to remember this amazing event. We should do something maybe every week that we don't forget. That's not what's going on. What's going on is that God himself calls us to worship as we begin every service. He calls us to worship, but in Christ, the one who became human and then sends his Holy Spirit so that it may go global, the presence of God in heaven may go global, unites us to our worship leader in heaven. This is so crucial and I think will encourage us in our worship, which is also why in the beginning of our bulletin guide, we have Revelations 4 and 5 quoted because in a sense we are participating in the heavenly worship. Jesus is alive now. We're not remembering some dead guy who just happened to be really good and important to us. The earliest Christians, this is really fascinating to me, I think, the earliest Christians did not care where his tomb was. There's a church there now, and apparently it's on the place where his tomb was, but we don't really know, because they didn't really care. You don't care about his tomb if he's alive and has risen and is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the Holy Spirit is going to proclaim the truth of his resurrection. That's what's important now. That he is alive, that he is our true leader in worship. He is, if you will, the subject and object of worship. He is the one empowering us to do it, uniting us to do it. And so this isn't just uh, sort of high theological talk. 
I think this should really change how we worship. One is, that means that worship is not primarily our job to do. And God is waiting, waiting for us. God is not sitting back in heaven waiting for us to do our part. He is the powerful one who saves us and who brings us to himself in worship. How gracious is that? That even now it's not by works. That even now it's still by grace. And that should define our life of worship. It also means that we can always come. It doesn't mean that only on a good week we can come, only when we're super motivated, super holy. It also doesn't mean on a bad week we can stay home because it's not dependent on us. It's been on our access is dependent on Christ. And how we view our accent is going to be a claim on Christ. If we think our access is hindered by our sin, we are saying Jesus hasn't covered that sin. We are saying he hasn't gone down deep enough to deal with the depths of our sin. If we think that we have to get ourselves figured out before we come to God, we are missing the basics of the gospel. Please, please don't forget that. It is his offering and his sacrifice through which we come, not ours. That's what guarantees our access. It also tells us that we have his real presence. The book of Hebrews is constantly worried that these earliest Christians, probably Jewish Christians, most of them that he was writing to, were going to fall back into the Judaism of their day before Christ. And so often, over and over, he's saying, Jesus is better than what you think you're going to get. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the temple. He's better than the worship that you get by the law. Why would you go back to this temple where only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year when you could have the presence of the Holy of Holies in Christ every day. That's the presence that we are promised here. So the first point is seeing our great high priest. The priest of worship is the one who has seated, who has done the work, and is now even leading us in worship. And so as it was promised through Jeremiah, the quote from, uh, that's in our passage is from the prophet Jeremiah, that was, Jeremiah is known for the Jeremiads, right? That's where we get that term. The, the, uh, the anger and the gloom, if you will, of the downfall of Jerusalem. He's known for prophesying the downfall of Jerusalem. But then he gives these hopeful prophecies of what's going to come. And so we have this prophecy of the new covenant. And so I want to look at the final thing that gets mentioned, the basis, if you will, of the benefits of the new covenant, and that is God's forgiveness, the possibility of worship. As he says in verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The high priest, as we said, has done 
with his work. But our passage reminds us, if he's going to be a priest, he must have had some work to do. The priests today still have work to do. The priest of Christ, the Christ, our priest, his work was offered once for all. His body, it's complete. It is the choice. Did you notice how he put it? He's going to remember their sins no more. It is the choice of the all-knowing God to no longer remember your sins. Think about that. He's choosing not to have a grudge despite our cosmic rebellion, our cosmic treason, our selfish idolatry and adultery. He is saying, my forgiveness is as good as if I will not even remember it. The possibility of worship is that this forgiveness is complete. Is there anything else in your life like that? Is there anything else that is a foundation that will not change other than you are forgiven? We're still working out our sanctification. We're still saving up for retirement. We're still working hard in our classes or thinking about what classes to take or we're worried about our kids' work in their classes. We're still trying to get fit. There's everything in our life is something we are trying to work better at. We're looking at the future. We live in an age of anxiety, and we consume products that get us to buy more products to build up our anxiety, and more and more we're looking to do more, and everything feels incomplete. Everything feels like it's a foundation that is sinking sand, except for the once-for-all work of our priest says, you are forgiven. I will remember your sins no more. Man. That's why we say it every week. We say it every week not to make it rote or boring. We say it every week because everything else in our life is telling us it's not true. Everything else in our life is saying you got to earn it. Don't forget you're going to have to perform still just a little bit. You're really not forgiven because how could he forgive you of that sin that you're not even willing to talk about or you're not even willing to pray about? Everything else in our life wants to convince us the world, the flesh, and the devil are meant to, that is their intent, to try to convince you that you are not forgiven. That it can't be done with. And yet, the word of Christ over and over, the accomplished work of Christ over and over says, no, you are forgiven. Our access is guaranteed because of Christ. Every, every system, every, every worship system, whether it's actually called worship and actually called salvation or not, has some type of access. You've got to buy your way in. You've got to earn your way in. You've got to read enough self-help books. Whatever it is, there's some type of gate that you've got to get through for the salvation, the nirvana, whatever it may be. This access comes only when we realize we cannot earn our way in, but there is one who has. That's how 
sure a foundation we have. And yes, that is good, but that's just making this worship possible. And so I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about what's next. Because the gospel is not just we are forgiven and we are brought back to zero and now we're given a second chance. Good luck. Try to live holy from now on, starting now. Go. It's not that. That would be, that would be pretty good, but it's not that. Christ gives us his righteousness and is powerfully making us more and more into his image. That's the fullness of the gospel. So the power of worship, it is formative. Just like all types of worship are. All types of worship, Christian or not, are formative. They're making us into something. right? We're drinking the, the powder of the golden calf, if you will, whatever we are drinking. And so what does it mean that God is making us into his image? Well, the promise of this better covenant is put in the, this way. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This echoes a later prophecy from Ezekiel, talking about giving us a new heart, taking out our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. We're being remade. Nothing short of recreation. And so the New Testament very often compares what happens to those who are redeemed. They compare it to creation. It is a recreation. Listen to the way Romans 8 puts it. In verse 3, Paul writes, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you catch that? In order that, He wants to make us more and more righteous. On the foundation that will not change, this part is going to change. Sanctification is a process that changes throughout our life. We grow more and more like Christ. It's not linear. You're not more holy than you were last week, necessarily. Or there should be growth. But the growth is such that we are being given a new heart. B.B. Warfield, 19th century guy, uh, puts it this way. Humans need something more than to know the right way. He needs to love it. Or he will not walk in it. You think that's true? We don't just need knowledge. He goes on to say, all mere teaching which can do nothing more than bring us knowledge of what we ought to do is but the letter that killeth. What we need is some inward, spirit-given aid to the keeping of what by the law we know ought to be kept. And that just reminds me of Psalm 119 where he is crying out, oh, how I love your law. That's what God wants to do in us. How crazy is that? That we are actually going to be saying things like, I love your law, I delight in your statutes, I want to be prevented from not following your commands, things like this in Psalm 119. We want to not just 
know God and know God's ways, we want to love him. And I know for me, in a lot of ways, when I am struggling and battling against some certain sin, I have the knowledge that it is sin. I'm just not quite ready to pray that it would be taken away from me. I'm not quite ready to pray that God would actually change my heart. Are you? You may want to theoretically not continue in a certain sin. You know it's not right, but you still kind of like it. You still want to massage it a little bit, maybe just once or twice a week. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want to leave us up to momentary decisions where we have the right knowledge and maybe we choose the right one, maybe we choose the wrong one at that moment. No, he wants to form in us the very image of Jesus Christ. He wants to change our hearts and our wills. He is writing his law on our minds that it will be internalized. It will be what we desire. It will be what Psalm 119 calls blessed. It will be our happiness, what we want to pursue. So what would it take in your life for you to actually pray that? To even start to want it? What is that thing that you really want to keep down deep? You don't want to let God know about it, even though you know he already does. You don't really want to face it. Why is that? And what is the assumption underneath you wanting to stick with it, to hold on to it? You think it's going to be worse without that sin? You think God is against you because he wants to take that sin from you? He's not. He's not against us. Think about the assumptions we make about who God is when we want to hold on to. We still ultimately really like our sin. Our sinful nature, the problem is not just that we sin, the problem is that we like it. We want to do it. Even though it may seem irrational, we still want to do it. And so one of those great promises of this better covenant, this new covenant, is not just that we are given the law, not just that we are told to memorize it, we are promised that he will write it on our minds and hearts. And so it makes sense that this would be this other promise, the power of God in what he's doing through our worship is that we will all know. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, none shall be excluded. You don't have to bring your worldly credentials. Your resume has no power in the kingdom of God. None will be excluded. Paul says it as there is no longer in Christ either Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are all one. The verse right before that, he says, all of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. And because we are putting on the same God, we all know him from the least to the greatest. The least in the world's eyes is not the least in the kingdom of God. 
It's this universal personal knowledge. We will all be able to call upon the Lord. And that is where we get this radical nature of the Christian community. That because we are all being made into the one God, we are all being united no matter where we come from or our background or our education, race, everything. And maybe that's something we hear a lot, but man, how much do we need to work at making that a reality? Second Corinthians 3 has a very similar treatment. He's, he starts off by comparing these old and new covenants, these old and new dispensations. And the old is passing away, and with the old, Moses has to keep a veil over his face because there's still judgment, because their hearts are not being remade, because they're not able to fulfill the law yet, because they're not in Christ being remade from the inside yet. But then he ends chapter 3 in this way. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Meaning we can actually see and hear the law from God without condemnation. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That last verse should, should sort of blow our minds. We all, so everyone who is in Christ, with unveiled face, singular, it's one face, because it's Christ's face, beholding the glory of the Lord, can also be translated reflecting the glory of the Lord. And now we're back to the same golden calf idea. We are, as we worship God, as we behold him, we are reflecting him and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So the person of Jesus Christ, who, though he was equal with God and I consider it something to take advantage of, became human, satisfied the demands of the law, that we may walk according to these holy commandments, that we may worship the one that we were meant to worship, not worship all of these other competing gods and idols, and is doing that now as our worship leader, uniting us, bringing us to heaven, even as we are on earth, to make us more and more like him, to even unite us more and more like him. That is an amazing, amazing story of Christianity. I hope you see why it's relevant, because you have never met someone who doesn't worship. It's also offensive, because if you are not worshiping in and through Christ, you are like the walking dead, bringing your sacrifices and your offerings, your gold and jewelry, like the Israelites of the golden calf, or whatever it is that you are worshiping, you are bringing to some other God that did not create the world, that will not forgive you, that will not bless you. 
That's why it's offensive. I don't have to go to some social, politically correct issue to see why Christianity is offensive. It's offensive at its very heart. But its offense shows us why it is so unbelievably open to everyone from the least to the greatest. This promise is offered to know the Lord, to become like him regardless of your sin, to actually begin to change your heart to say not just, I know I've done wrong, but now I actually want to be like you, God. I want to be like Jesus, who loved his enemies, was friends with sinners, but still pursued righteousness. I want to be like you. I want to have new new glasses on to see the world in a new way. That's what God is doing. And we get to eat and drink him for that same purpose, that we would participate in the life of God. It should be overwhelming. And it should be gracious. We, of course, don't deserve it. How could we ever say in and of ourselves, yeah, God, of course, let me be like you. I'm going to be on your team. That doesn't make sense. It seems arrogant for us to say a lot of these things. It seems so outrageously arrogant, doesn't it? But it's not. Do you see why it's not arrogant? Because it's not based on what we have done. It's based on our high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the creator of all is the redeemer who will redeem our bodies perfectly, but is now redeeming our hearts and minds to walk in his steps and to worship him that we may become more and more like him, his body. Let's pray. Father, it does feel arrogant. It can feel arrogant sometimes even just to pray, but Lord, we come on the merits of Christ. We come after him, following him. We come wanting to be united to him, wanting to be like him, knowing that we cannot boast in ourselves, but we boast in you. Lord, help us to fight the battle of our hearts that want to worship so many other things. You made us to worship and to reflect, let us reflect you, the only true God, the only one that will satisfy our souls, the only one that will make us ultimately and eternally happy, the one source of life. Father, show us what it means to worship you to the praise of your glorious grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.